Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Lisa Heineman, co-host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. 520,000 women served in the Red Army's regular troops in World War II. Another 300,000 served in anti-aircraft formations. We're not talking women's auxiliaries performing medical or clerical functions. We're talking combat troops. In her book, Soviet Women in Combat... I'm Lisa Heineman, co-host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, part of the New Books Network. 520,000 women served in the Red Army's regular troops in World War II. Another 300,000 served in anti-aircraft formations. We're not talking women's auxiliaries performing medical or clerical functions. We're talking combat troops. In her book, Soviet Women in Combat, A History of Violence on the Eastern Front, historian Anna Krylova of Duke University takes us into these women's world. Part of the first generation to grow up in the young Soviet Union, their socialization and that of their male peers differed radically from that of their elders. By the time the Germans attacked in 1941, young women were prepared, both emotionally and in terms of skills, to participate in mechanized warfare. Yet, as Krylova argues, they did not understand themselves to be breaking out of women's roles, nor did they consider their combat duties to be extraordinary measures in a time of emergency. Rather, they had a much more flexible concept of gender roles, in which there was no necessary contradiction between womanhood and soldierhood, and in which men and women could share the fighting front just as they shared civilian space. Soviet Women in Combat came out with Cambridge University Press in 2010, and it's the 2011 winner of the Herbert Baxter Adams Prize of the American Historical Association. It's a terrific piece of research and a remarkable rethinking of the ways Soviet citizens reimagined gender. Let's listen. Hello, Anna. Do I have you? Yes, I'm here. Hi, Anna. Anna, I'm delighted to have you on the program today. We have here Anna Krylova, who is author of Soviet Women in Combat, A History of Violence on the Eastern Front. Thanks for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Anna, why don't you start out by telling us just a little bit about your own background, how you came to be a historian and and do this kind of work? Mm -hmm. Well, looking back now, I think I was destined to become a historian. I, um, as you probably know, I grew up in the Soviet Union and I uh, I was a teenager in late 70s and early 80s. So this was a time uh, when it was 1985 when uh, Gorbachev came to power and later when he began, began, began his perestroika, I actually was just finishing the school and preparing to go to university. And it was a very interesting time in terms of history because the major, kind of, uh, until 1996, uh, Soviet history had a very a straight a narrative that had been constructed in official um, history books. And this was the books that most school children in the Soviet Union would learn and also will kind of recite when they graduate from school. But in 87, uh, actually already starting with 86 in 87, uh, history uh, exams uh, in school were actually canceled. And it was de facto 
kind of uh, an acknowledgement that Soviet history had ceased to exist as it had been taught so far at that at that, at that point. So I didn't take a history exam when I was graduating from school. And I also was not taking a history exam when I actually was enrolling to university. And this situation was an, kind of an aspect of a larger historical discussion in the Soviet Union when journalists, literary critics, literature uh, activists uh, were all discussing what actually happened since 1917 to 1918 uh, and also 1918. So... De facto, by late 1980s, Soviet history says to exist as a narrative, as a coherent story. And a lot of intellectuals would actually go as far as to say that Soviet history doesn't exist because nothing progressive or significant happened in the 70 years since 1917. And that was actually why Soviet school children actually would not take any exams. So I felt like I was a generation without history, and I was, it was very free. I was very free. I felt very liberated that I didn't have to take exams. But in retrospect, it was also very disorient, a very disorienting experience because uh, it raised questions of who actually we were in the 1970s and 80s if we actually couldn't tell a history of the country uh, that we were, I don't know, that we were from. So when I went to the United States, I actually started first studying political, political science because I actually I thought I was also under the impression, uh, under the influence of this perestroika debates and perestroika claims that Soviet history was irrelevant and non-existent. But over time, I realized that actually I can't really answer the questions that I would want to answer about myself through study of political theory and literary criticism and actually had to turn to history. So after two years in political science, I actually turned uh, around and I decided to enroll again to graduate school and I decided to become a historian. You know, one of the interesting things about the book, we will get to this in a couple of minutes, um, has to do with the sort of writing and rewriting and reinterpreting of history. And um, you have some of that happening uh, with your protagonists already in the few decades after the war. Um, but it's something, of course, you know, so many historians think a lot about. How do you how do you tell history, um, you know, sort of in light of present day conditions? Um, I think you, you sort of have a, a lot of school children's fantasy, perhaps, to be excused from history exams. Yes. <laughs> um, but in any case, once you started uh, in graduate school, uh, you ended up with a dissertation topic that led to this book about Soviet women in the Second World War. And I wonder if you could tell us something about the origins of that project. Well, I wanted to write a dissertation about World War II. And I actually thought that the dissertation will be very predictable and intuitive. Like I imagined a story about uh, the home front that will be female, the front that will be male. I actually didn't think that I would have, I mean, I, I was trying to learn gender history uh, profession and gender history interpretive tools that already existed uh, at the time in American academia. And basically to write my project and to apply gender history interpretive modes onto this project. And, of course, criticize the Soviet Union for um, for whatever there was there to criticize that because it was a very dominant, for me, that was a very important agenda since I was coming out of kind of perestroika period uh, history debates. Uh, so I began my uh, research and I start coming across very interesting sources and I was not sure how to interpret them. First of all, as I was looking through uh, central press, uh, Soviet central press, 
uh, from the war period, I was constantly coming across very confusing images of the war effort. Like on the one hand, you, of course, I saw a lot of art, a lot of images, photos, and uh, there were a lot of articles that talked about the home front as um, a female space, but there will be always men in that space, acknowledged. And on the other hand, which was even more surprising and in fact shocking to me, that, for example, such a central newspaper as Pravda, or another central newspaper of the Young Communist League, Komsomolskaya Pravda, would always feature women and men fighting together since 1941. And as you know, in 1941, Nazi Germany uh, attacked the Soviet Union. So those images of men and women fighting together, they were very interesting. First of all, those the women were all seemed to be all from the same generation. They were all young. And uh, the men who were they fighting with or sharing the territory space of combat, they were all from different generations. Also, it was very interesting because the young women who were featured in the press, they were also what we will call professional combatants, not infantry soldiers, but actually soldiers who had to be trained to be in combat. You could not just walk in into the combat zone and become a sniper or to become an artillery fighter or a commanding officer of a male platoon. Right? So this is something that pointed to me that there is a prehistory, that there was something going on, had been something going on in the Soviet society before the war that had made that kind of phenomenon possible. So to me, that was very strong. And then, of course, the Soviet press in the war period is a very complex space because the uh, Soviet press didn't feature only articles. It actually featured novels, poems, uh, even diary excerpts, excerpts, excerpts from diaries. And those spaces would be also very confusing and very multi-gendered. This is how I, would, I kind of began calling it, that you would see multi-gendered scripts of how men and women factor into the war effort, how they share combat and how they share home front. So uh, to me, that was very uh, strange and shocking for personal reasons too, because I grew up in the Soviet Union and I celebrated Victory Day every year <laughs> since the age I became conscious, mm -hmm. right? Because the Soviet Union had victory parades every May and uh, there were salutes every May and veterans would be walking uh, in all cities and towns on May 9th and we would always see female veterans, but we would always assume that we knew who they were. And at least I didn't really pose a question to myself ever, uh, about those veter female veterans, I always assumed that I knew who they were, and I assumed they were medics, uh, telephone operators, uh, maybe mechanics, maybe some non-combatant helpers. But I never knew, or it never occurred to me to ask a question whether they actually had participated in combat. So I realized that what the phenomenon that I was actually um, witnessing uh, in press and all those different aspects of war culture that kind of intersected in, in the press was a very very interesting phenomenon. It was a certain history of gender, of, of gendered kind of construction that had taken place in the Soviet Union before the, the war. And also at the same time, it was a story about already forgetting of that phenomenon, since I, as post-post-war generation, uh, didn't even think of asking questions about um, about what happened to the in the war, uh, what happened to women and women's participation in the war during the war. Uh, from there, I 
decided that I'm going to change that I would I should probably change the dissertation topic <laughs> and not write a conventional story about female home front and male com uh, and male co uh, combat, but actually to look at how uh, the Soviet war effort was shared in a very different manner uh, during the war. And that notion of sharing the experience, I think that ties back to a term you used earlier, this notion of a kind of a multi-gendered experience rather than men at the home, uh, excuse me, men at the fighting front and women at the home front, a certain idea of what women should be. And then maybe some extraordinary women in masculinizing and deviating from that. You, you have a more complicated story of what a woman is supposed to be and the range of acceptable modes of womanhood. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little. Right. Um, the concept of sharing was a working concept before I, as I was thinking through how, what was going on in, uh, at the front and what had happened before the front. So actually I divided my book uh, into three parts in order to be able to capture the appearance of multi-gendered scripts in the Soviet Union before the war and during the war. So I divided the book into three parts. One part, and this is actually a foundational part in the book, is devoted to the pre-war decade of the 1930s. Then the next uh, part is devoted actually to a story how men and women got from, the, from, kind of from 1941 when the war began uh, through volunteering to the front. So the, actually the second part is devoted to volunteering and a passage that people need to take as they decide to volunteer and then they end up in some combatant um, combat units. And then the third part of the book is devoted to combat and combat uh, kind of uh, sharing combat per se. Uh, and, and kind of a, and another parallel layer is also home front that goes through all those uh, through all those three parts. So I began. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you how I actually was trying to interpret. Uh, my sources and my stories first, and then how I realized that it was not working. I began, of course, I thought that I would begin my book actually from the story of volunteering, and I start reading female memoirs and uh, male memoirs of how they volunteered either by themselves or together, men and women together. And I was very struck by a story that me women were telling. They actually would usually tell a story about how they heard that the war began in, uh, began uh, uh, on June 22nd. They would remember exactly where they were. And then they would uh, remember that they would just start automatically walking in the direction of a conscription site. Or they would start walking in the direction of the Young Communist League cell, which they also assumed will be conscripting uh, men and women. So this particular generation of young men, and, or first of all, of young women who were born around 1910, in 1941, when they heard the news of the war, knew exactly what they had to do, and it also sounded as it was a kind of it was a script that was internalized so deeply that they didn't have to reflect about what their next step would be. So there was no in their memoirs about their volunteering decision. There were no reflections, questions, thinking what the right thing to do should they not should they go to the front. They just did it automatically. Uh, so. From, this was the moment when I realized that I can tell the story as this women deciding to enter the male space of combat and leave the female space of home front behind. But as I re read through the memoirs, I actually saw that these women did not perceive front or combat as male. They actually 
kind of intuitively saw it as being shared between men and women. And in a similar manner, they also didn't perceive leaving the home front as leaving the female space. They also thought that was a mixed territory, a mixed territory between different generations of men and different generations of women. So I realized that this, uh, our very conventional way of interpreting cultural dynamics as male versus female, or male being opposed, opposed to female, or constitution of male, of male or female uh, roles as, kind of, as excluding women, or kind of uh, hierarchizing between men, male and female roles in relation to some particular social uh, kind of uh, social role like war. That actually, these counterpositions were not really working in this case. I don't know. Does this make sense? It makes a lot of sense, yes, because I think that, um, you know, it, it is one of the sort of great moments of doing history where you're, you expect to see a certain story, right? And I, I, you know, in reading the book, one is really struck by these excerpts from memoirs where, you know, as you say, the woman just sort of automatically goes sign up. Um, and it really does raise the question, what got them to that point? Um, and, and, and thus your, your very, very interesting first chunk on their pre-war socialization, um, which I do think is very interesting. It tells us a lot, not only about the women, but also about the men of their same age cohort, who becomes very important to the story. Right. And when, <clears throat> I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that, about their experience, um, you know, really in the 1930s, uh, in a sense, preparing for war. Right. So for me, at the core of this question was how it was possible to think about the soldierly calling as not being in opposition uh, to womanhood. And to go even further, if we follow female, actually, accounts, not only... Uh, to follow female accounts, also how is it possible for the soldierly calling not to be in opposition to womanhood, but also to be com somehow compatible with motherhood? Because the women that I'm writing about and I'm interested in, those women who volunteered in 1941, who also were either teenagers or in their early 20s, these women didn't want to become professional military personnel. They just wanted to become citizen soldiers. And they didn't see any conflict between them wanting to defend their motherland when they were in their late teens and early 20s, and then later in, some, in, late in their life become mothers, and also they didn't exclude the possibility, I mean, actually they completely assumed that they will also at some point will be involved in romantic heterosexual uh, 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 kind of uh, uh, family life. So how, how was it possible for a young woman in 1941 to imagine that she can be simultaneously a soldier, a mother, a lover, and a wife? And I was also very, uh, it was very, very important for me to not go down another interpretive mode where such a decision could be a kind of uh, explained by saying, well, there was an emergency at the Soviet front in 1941, so everyone went. Women also went because they had to actually help the country at this moment of crisis. Because these women actually didn't rely on the narrative of crisis, on the narrative of emergency, but actually insisted that they had been prepared to do that since uh, at least uh, they, since the 1930s, I had to go into the 1930s and see where exactly that happened, right? Like culturally, institutionally, socially where such, such ways of thinking about 
combat as being compatible with womanhood and sharing shareable between men and women, actually where those concepts were uh, constituted. So uh, I just followed uh, the kind of the paths that were already kind of that female memoirs gave me and female diaries gave me. I had to go to the secondary school, the Soviet Soviet, uh, Soviet, uh, school in the 1930s. And I was very shocked, actually, to find out that um, the ideology of gender equality and gender opportunity uh, was fully realized in Soviet secondary school uh, through completely integrated education. So in 1930s, the revolutionary promise of gender equality actually acquired its most radical and rational at the same time kind of institutional reality in integrated education where boys and girls studied together all general subjects. They also participated in all paramilitary training together. They also shared labor classes and women were not subject to any home economics uh, classes. So to me, this was became my kind of space in which I decided that I'm going to study social relations which come out of such institutional spaces. Uh, and in a sense, this was what Soviet educationalists actually were hoping for, what kind of were planning for. Soviet educationalists in the 1930s presumed that if a school would be constructed in this profoundly integrated manner, then all the traditional gender roles that had that existed outside of the school would have to go through major transformation. And ideally, those integrated school spaces will invite students to come up and to develop new social roles and new social um, relations. And I have several very interesting stories uh, in the book, uh, specifically focused on that moment where a boy and a girl meet in a paramilitary space, like, for example, shooting range, and they start shooting together. And it turns out that a female actually shoots better than a male. And this becomes a moment where both, uh, where a boy and a girl have to rethink or ask, uh, answer the question, what, what, what does it mean that actually kind of conventional gender stereotypes where a boy is considered to be born soldier and a female is considered to be born non-soldier actually don't work? And uh, one of actually the, the, uh, the young woman who is featured on my book cover, uh, she is a real person. Her name is Lyudmila Pavlichenko, and she is one of the most famous female snipers in wo- of World War II. She had uh, a score of 311 officers that she uh, yes she scored on the uh, on the front. So she discovered her her kind of new identity specifically on the shooting range when she participated in a shooting competition and then she actually scored uh, extremely well and got all the prizes which were offered in that particular competition. So she actually uh, wrote up, um, kind of, she remembered during the war what impact that experience had on her when she actually started thinking that through this experience she actually uncovered certain hidden female self that she didn't know she had. So this is it was for me it was a very important moment where a young woman put in an institutional space of a shooting range, which actually had, had been made available to her by Soviet education, is rethinking what womanhood means to her. And what she decides at the end of this process of rethinking that womanhood means to her that 
she can be a combatant, she can be a professor of history, that was her actually kind of ideal that she would become after the war. And she also thinks that this is compatible with motherhood. So to me, what is very interesting is that in the Soviet case, what happens is that a particular ideological story about gender equality becomes objectified reality in social relations because institutional spaces were provided for that, for that ideology to be uh, kind of taken up by particular individuals. And in a sense, unless certain ideological pronouncements are not supported by institutional policies and institutional spaces, those ideologies probably will remain rhetoric or just kind of an just there will be a conversation among, among intellectuals. In the Soviet case, because conversations and kind of ideals of gender equality were translated into institutional spaces of Soviet schooling, then those ideals became actually kind of thinking reality for teenagers and also spaces where those teenagers worked out new social relations and they had to figure out how exactly they're going to work out those work through those spaces where they will put together at the same time. So, so as you say, it's it's really this very much realized revolution, right, um, <clears throat> in, in developing kind of a new Soviet man and woman. Um, and this really is the first fully Soviet generation, right? These are the ones that are getting their getting their education, um, you know, really fully in the Soviet Union. And then what happens is that, um, you know, here they are, they're both socialized, um, you know, into different kinds of gender roles, the boys and the girls are learning together. Um, as you note, very importantly, they're also learning skills. Uh, they're not just learning to accept each other, but they're learning learning real skills uh, in what's going to be a highly mechanized fighting front. And it almost seems that once June 1941 comes along, that although these you know, teenagers and young adults are ready for it, um, that the the administration doesn't quite know how they're going to handle this. So we, you have this interesting moment in June of 1941 and in the ensuing months um, where simultaneously you have this kind of, you know, horrible military story. I mean, the complete collapse of the, of the front. So chaos in, in Soviet society and military operations in general, but combined with uh, an administration that doesn't quite have a position mm-hmm. on women in combat yet. So there's a lot of sort of improvisatory mechanisms. And I wonder if you could tell us how that works in that first stage, whereas you say so many women are kind of just intuitively saying, oh, I guess I'm going to go sign up now. What happens when they get to those um, those recruitment centers and um, some recruiters are ready to take them and other ones aren't? Yeah, the fascinating thing is that in 1941, uh, the question what like women should do uh, uh, actually uh, during the war, uh, this question is an open question. The society doesn't have a uniform answer. And this question is open for women because women come from different generations. A generation of women that goes through Soviet schooling in the 30s actually automatically assumes that the front is a shared territory between men and women. Uh, all the women, women from all the generations actually do not share this view at all and usually would ask their daughters and granddaughters uh, actually not to volunteer. Uh, and the same thing would be true for men. And it will be, the situation will be even more interesting because uh, different male generations in the Soviet Union, on, like the majority of men, of course, will be surprised by female volunteering. But at the same time, 
the majority of men will also be able to understand the rationale behind female volunteering. Right. So the the situation will be very interesting that 1941 men uh, and men would actually be able to explain female volunteering by saying, well, they're kind of living this liberation that the revolution promised. Uh, they might be disagreeing with that promise, but they will be able to understand the principle why women are volunteering. And this multiplicity, to me, this actually shows a moment of op openness, because if society can kind of debate what a female role should be, what women should do, and they could have those conversations in conscription sites where women volunteer and a, and a conscripting officer will be contemplating uh, exactly which logic should he follow. Should he follow the logic that women by nature do not belong to combat, or should they, which actually women will argue this is bourgeois logic? Or should they actually follow different logic? Should uh, a conscripting officer follow logic that women's volunteering actually represents a new age in female liberation? And there is absolutely nothing fixed by nature as far as female female kind of nature is concerned. Then they will have to make a decision in 1941 whether they're going to take women in or not. Right. So this multiplicity of logics actually goes back into 1930s. Uh, we have talked about that the Soviet school was a very uniform gendered space where actually girls and boys were invited to experiment with their gendered identities. They specifically in school, because schools were integrated, they were invited to, to actually they were invited to become anything they can be except their parents. So they were supposed to come up with some gender roles which will not be gender roles the way they had been practiced by their mothers and fathers. Outside of the school, the situation will not be the same. When, if we actually leave this Stalinist school in the 1930s and go to paramilitary training spaces, or we actually will look into Soviet press, or we look into Soviet literature, we will see that the school, school position constitutes only one aspect of gender discussions and war in the 1930s. So, for example, in the Soviet press, you could uh, see you could see a lot of articles where a male, like the future war will be presented as a war of men going to the front and women staying at the, uh, and staying at, at the home front. But then sometimes on the same page, in the same newspaper, one would see a counter art, art kind of a story where a female uh, paramilitary activist would talk about her willingness to volunteer and would actually even Kind of, and she would suggest that she actually can leave her her children uh, maybe at the home front, or she would even assume that her husband could take care of her kids. So this kind of extremely radically different scripts for the war that would be part that would be part of the uh, Stalinist uh, press uh, press coverage, and they also will permeate a Soviet um, Soviet literature and Soviet and Soviet um, film. So in a sense, what is fascinating about 1930s is that. You have very different kind of. You have one. One can have different gender logics, which organize different aspects of Soviet life. So, if you look at the Soviet schools, you will see that there is a state policy that asks for integration of education and working out of alternative gender roles for men and women, and therefore, in, and also in relation to the war. But if you look at the, at, at the press, you actually can see multiple stories written by different generations that actually offer very traditional images of the war and how men and women should divide home front and front. And also very alternative and radical notions where men and women would be featured as volunteering together to fight, uh, to fight the modern, modern combat. 
So this diversity from the 1930s repl- just repeats itself in 1941. And that's why the question of what women should do in 41 actually is an open question. Ultimately, in 1930s, the Soviet government didn't give a clear answer to the Soviet society, which out of these multiple gendered images a Soviet society should follow when the war comes. So then you have um, basically uh, individual commanders, the the, the person sitting at the recruitment station having to kind of grapple with these multiple images, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes also thinking about his own family. In some cases, this is someone with a daughter of this generation and is thinking about, you know, his daughter's ambitions. And sometimes these things become very personalized. Um, So there's, uh, there's, uh, you know, not consistency, obviously, but uh, it sounds to me you know, what you're saying here is not consistency doesn't mean a kind of a a lack, but rather in a sense a kind of a creativity, a, a sign that that this is a discussion that's taking place and people are free to grapple with with different possible implications. Yeah, actually, I call it a window of opportunity, mm-hmm. or right. multiple windows of opportunities where a a lack of a decided um, policy or or party line actually frees up space for people to make their decisions. And this is very paradoxical because what I'm suggesting, I'm suggesting that because there were were multiple ways of imagining the front and the home, kind of the war effort before the war and in 1941, this actually created a space for Soviet people to execute their agency. And this is paradoxical, right? Because we usually think about Stalin's Russia as a space where people cannot express themselves. They actually cannot uh, act, they cannot be agents and they cannot really make decisions. But here in a situation where the party and the leadership actually uh, failed to give a clear cut policy in relation to female participation in, uh, uh, in combat, then individual men, individual officers and and even mothers and fathers actually have to make up their own mind where, what particular gender script and gender policy they're going to follow. So and that that is a window of opportunity because this is where people have to start thinking on their own and start taking available cultural material and cultural kind of and skills that they have into kind of further. They have to develop what can be done with what they think, right? So tell us a little about how this worked in practice. How did a young woman get to the front in those days where, where there is this kind of multiplicity of, of, uh, of interpretations, of thoughts about how this should work? How did a young woman get to the front? Okay. Well, the most typical path would be the majority of women who volunteered in 1941 did not get to the front. Uh, but they uh, left petitions that they want to go to the front. Uh, only those women who were already at the like kind of uh, like, uh, only women who were medics they would get enlisted right away. But they usually will, would get enlisted with a dream that they will be able to switch from a medical from being a medical orderly to actually becoming a combatant. Uh, so a typical story will be uh, for a young woman to volunteer to be enlisted as a medical orderly, uh, to be sent to some um, training uh, training regiment, and then trying to switch uh, in the training trying to try trying to switch uh, her 
role uh, as a medical orderly to being a machine gunner. Uh, one of the most famous uh, women of World War II, that I mean, actually famous to me, soon famous to maybe maybe more people, but definitely very famous during the war, was um, Zoya Medvedeva. So Zoya Medvedeva uh, was uh, volunteered uh, to fight um, in 1941. She was immediately taken in as a medical orderly. And then as she got into the training regiment, she encountered very different, she encountered different uh, commanding officers and she tried to kind of have a conversation with with them about her future. So her first intention initiative was, let me just get in as a medical orderly and then we'll see, we'll have, I will try to do something else. So she encountered a whole group of commanding officers with whom she actually tried to have a conversation about her being really not a medical orderly, but actually being a machine gunner. So she actually told her particular um, kind of platoon uh, commander in her training regiment uh, actually understood her logic. First, she would actually she basically will uh, she will tell him that she would not she that she cannot be a medical orderly. She would like to be a machine gunner. Her officer, commanding officer, would doubt that she can be a machine gunner, and then she would actually assure him that she's absolutely incapable of becoming a doctor or medical orderly because she can faint from blood, and she would explain to him. So basically, through her enactment uh, of what actually what this what Zoe Medvedev will be trying to tell the officer who is in command of her of her fate would be trying to convince him that she's a different kind of a woman. So the type of the woman she is is not a traditional one, but actually an, uh, actually a very non-traditional female. And she would ask him to recognize that there is a tradition on non-tradi- there is a tradition of non-traditional way of being a woman in Soviet society and even before actually and even in Russian history. So at some point, uh, a commanding officer, in most cases, in, in a lot of cases, a commanding officer would think deeply, would look at her very closely. And then he would acknowledge that, yes, you actually seem to be a different kind of woman. And by kind of acknowledging that she was a different kind of woman, a kind of a military officer, in my interpretation, actually acknowledged that there is no one universal female nature, but actually you need to question a female, you need to talk to a female to find out who she actually was. There was a very interesting, actually, my favorite um, situation at the front would be um, actually is narrated by uh, a dive, bo- a dive uh, bomber, uh, Anna Yegorova. Anna Yegorova ended up being the deputy commander of uh, all-male um, air regiment in World War II, so she actually uh, was in charge of 300 men as a deputy commandant. So she actually volunteered in 1941. She became a, uh, she became a male uh, pilot first, and then in 1942, she decided that she would like to, I mean, she, did, she decided there was an opportunity to switch from being a male pilot to actually being a combat pilot. And she wanted to be a dive, uh, dive bomber pilot. So she had to go through the interview with a very high, uh, high commanding officer. And she had to convince him that she actually can be a dive bomber. So the conversation that she narrates is about how she tells the officer that she wants to become a dive bomber. And the officer tells her, no, a woman cannot be a dive bomber because this is not a female business. So this is the instant when a male officer follows down, tries to interpret or understand 
uh, Yegorova through tra traditional lenses. And then Yegorova actually starts explaining to him that she doesn't understand his particular logic because it's not very clear to her why, for example, a female can be a medical orderly and she can die as a medical orderly on, on, in combat by saving female soldiers, and why can she do not die as a dive bomber fighting with a, with a, with a plane? So in, those, in, in the particular case of Anna Yegorova's conversation, she was prepared to fight till the end for her right to be a dive bomber and insist that actually women can be soldiers. But this particular conversation got interrupted very quickly because the commanding officer looked at her, smiled, and decided not to argue with her at all. What he told her is that she reminded him of his own daughter, who also volunteered to the front. So to me, this was a very interesting moment where a male officer was very well aware of multiple gendered identities, which were already operating in World War II on the, on the Eastern Front. But he actually decided, and he was capable of following different, different paths. First, he tried out, to, he invited Igorova to, kind of, to accept a traditional female role. So he told her that she cannot be dive bomber. When she disagreed and gave him very compelling argument, reasons why this, is, this actually logically is not the case, then he, he, then he followed a different path and he informed her that, yes, he is aware that there are this kind of women who actually don't follow that different path, path and in fact, his daughter belongs to that different type. Right. So after that, Yegorova and the commanding officer became best friends, and he actually helped her very much in the career. But this is an example where you could, I mean, like just kind of where men and women are trying to talk about what the front is supposed to be, what female nature is capable of being and becoming, and therefore also men, how what men are capable of, and whether they can fight with women, where multiple scripts are available and historical actors follow different scripts and trying to kind of articulate their articulate their paths into the war story. So I'm also very interested how that happens in, in combat because there are some moments where men will uh, actually will like when men will encounter women combatants right in combat for example a female regiment would arrive and men will have to fight with women basically the next day and they would not have they would be in kind of they had not they would not have had an opportunity to even to express their disagreement or express their agreement right so but combat will be those that moment where men and women actually fight together and they would be forced by circumstances to cooperate because if you don't cooperate in combat you actually will submit each other to death i mean you would not be able to survive and this will be also those moments where traditional conventions of womanhood and manhood behaving in certain ways in certain particular ways in combat for example when women were supposed to be disoriented and men would be supposed to save them would not work. Like in a lot of cases, uh, men in combat would not be able to save women because they will be also disoriented or demoralized. And women would be sometimes demoralized, but they usually would, but men and women at some point also would go and will kind of embrace, uh, will overcome their initial disorientation in combat and will actually start working together so they will see that actually kind of the patterns of behavior in combat and in stress situations are very similar in a very uh, very similar uh, among men and um, among men and women especially if women and men are relatively well trained or sometimes in those cases when women are better trained than men women actually will be probably leading the situation so combat itself 
provide a lot of material that one needs to interpret that actually doesn't, uh, doesn't agree with conventional, conventional scripts. And this is the moments where uh, people will reach out to alternative gender scripts already created in the 1930s, and they will try to explain what's happening to them in combat by using alternative cultural capital already produced in the 30s to explain to them what's going on. You know, one thing that you sort of mentioned early on in, in sort of some of the uh, perhaps ways of telling this history that you're um, trying to challenge is a kind of a notion of, you know, women going to the front and encountering male resistance. Mm -hmm. And what, what you're trying to say here is that, you know, there's resistance there, there's acceptance, but, but it's, it's, it's something that we have to consider as part of a kind of a dialectic of a conversation. There's not a, a single position of resistance and women sort of trying to butt up against that. But these are often very subtle negotiations. They take place over time. They take place through conversation, but also through action, um, where, where all the people involved will you know, observe how the others behave in combat. Um, and there's something just very, very kind of um, subtle and, and refined about about your ways of discussing, you know, basically what are very human interactions under under situations of incredible stress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I would I would stress that the very possibility to interact in combat and to be able to come up with different explanations why men and women could share combat. Uh, the very possibility for this kind of negotiation and discussion uh, actually resides in the 1930s cultural and social institutional spaces. Had actually people not been socialized differently and a bit contradictory and kind of uh, uh, differently in 1930s, they would they would not have different ways of interpreting what was happening to them in combat. Mm -hmm. so yeah, that to me is a very important thing because I can. Uh, and then it, and then there is the next step. If the generation of young men and women that enters into combat in 1941 uh, actually spends four years in combat, right, it's a very long time, then it is reasonable to assume that a lot of social uh, creativity will take place uh, where men and women will have to create new military cultures, new ways of being male and female combatants, and new ways of gendering combat into male and female spaces, but not in in in, in oppositional ways, but actually in kind of integrated ways and uh, in compatible ways. Um, I'm just thinking of some example that I could um, give. Maybe I will also just show, uh, kind of go back to Zoya Medvedeva, uh, who was a machine gunner, and. She stayed in combat for to, approximately for two years, and she was uh, in charge of a male uh, machine gun crew, and she fought with uh, basic with uh, five men on a regular basis. It was very important to her to be able to talk about men machine gunners and women machine gunners, and and that was a very important thing to her because. She was n under no circumstances she would want to be a manly woman, <laughs> uh, a woman who is good at doing a masculine task of war, machine gunning. She actually was insistent on splitting the kind of the position of machine gun of being a machine gunner into male and female rights. Uh, and at the same time, she would be very insistent of actually kind of 
um, making sure and so she was very it was very important to her not to be mistaken for a male at the front and not to be perceived as a masculine female or masculine woman so all those kind of oppositions that we usually use when we talk about women in combat assigning assigning them kind of characteristics of masculinity or manliness she would be very conscious of not actually ascribing to herself and one of the ways she would do is she would actually use very traditional female uh, kind of signs, sign, I don't know, like um, signifies, like flowers, that she would mm-hmm. decorate her machine gun, uh, 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 machine gun with flowers, and all, and her uh, position also would be covered by red flowers or whatever flowers were available in the spring, so that men at the front and commanding officers at the front would see from very far away that there is this mom space and and right at the front line, which is actually operated by a female. So my kind of the subtlety of this move is very is very um, is really it really needs to be taken into consideration, because conventionally this moves the such a move can be interpreted as a female who is doing a male job is trying to preserve her traditional femininity by using signifiers of flowers, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm actually I'm very. I, I'm sure, I would like to read it differently. I would like to read it differently because I think, given the agenda that uh, that uh, Zoya Medvedeva actually is trying to kind of to carry on in combat, for her using flowers to kind of indicate her presence in combat as a female combatant actually, first of all, indicates that the front cannot be taken as uniformly male anymore. Everyone has to face the fact that combat now is divided between men and women. It also indicates that the very meaning of flowers actually changes. That flowers do not necessarily have to indicate feminine as lesser uh, and weaker and inadequate, but actually, feminine uh, flowers can indicate a very uh, kind of um, compa- competent female combatant who is still capable of kind of, who doesn't stand in contradiction to like this kind of, this traditional image of of femininity flowers. But even in the very meaning of femininity also, I think, changes at this moment. Because what Medvedeva is trying, by bringing flowers into combat, into spaces of male and female sharing of combat, um, and indicating that kind of sharing through flowers, Medvedeva suggests that, femininity that she still actually claims to have doesn't point anymore to some kind of disabling, doesn't point anymore to feminine that is disabling and lesser than a male. So the pro, kind of, what is fascinating is how subtle kind of strategies of reinterpretation were that young women and also men kind of, uh, constructed while they were already in combat. Yeah. And, you know, when... In, as you sort of move through your discussion of the experience of combat and interactions between young men, young women and men of various generations, um, you know, I think the two, the two areas that the reader might expect to pose particular challenges um, are those of a woman commanding men mm-hmm. um, and then also the possibility of romantic relationships. And you have things to say about both of those subjects. And I wonder if you'd share them with us. Well, it is, uh, it is very interesting because I think, uh, we really could talk about male and female commanding cultures at the Eastern Front. Uh, I think they had, uh, by late 19, by 1944, uh, 
the Soviet army actually produced male and female commanders, and they were operate and and they operated. Um, I mean, they were trying to construct different ways of being commanders and suggesting that a commander can be male or female. Um, and to me, the most interesting moments in the, in kind of this experimentation of trying to bring men and women together in this uh, kind of alternative uh, organizations of command are when men themselves are remembering what it was like to be on the female commander, mm-hmm. especially when a male officer who is working under a female officer begins by claiming incomprehension how that could be the case and how gradually in his like in their memoirs those male officers actually explain how they come to realization that there is no nothing contradictory about about a female commander so those instances are most interesting to me uh especially when Okay, because the situation is that we have there is a there is an, an a fact right that actually men were under command of women in uh, World War II on the Eastern Front, and also those men chose to remember those instances when they be, when they start remembering their war experiences after the war. So after the war, they were in a position in which they could tell their stories any way they wanted, right? But they could have told they could have told their stories in in traditional manner, explaining women's presence in combat and becoming command, commanders because they just internalized masculine way of being too deeply. Or they could have come up with a different interpretation by using alternative gendered scripts of 1930s and taking them to a new kind of uh, synthesis. So I'm very fascinated when a male memoir begins, in a, when a male uh, veteran is writing in 1960s, and then he actually begins uh, his memoir by saying that he was fighting under female commander and he thought it was incomprehensible and the concept itself of a woman commander didn't make any sense to him. And then he would actually work with the female commander very closely, then he would participate in combat after her guidance and it would and he would have to, and he would be forced to start reaching out to alternative ways of explaining why she would be in combat. And gradually, in his own narrative, he would be start. He would actually kind of bring the reader to the realization, bring me as a reader to realization that there is nothing incomprehensible or contradictory about a female commander because because actually some women are better commanders and some men are worse commanders. And those narratives also will suggest very interesting kind of observation that kind of the whole opposition between male soldiers and female non-soldiers will be broken apart in those memoirs where men would themselves suggest that actually there is absolutely nothing intrinsic about uh, about there are some there is nothing intrinsically male about combatant being a combatant and there is nothing intrinsic about female about being non-combatant just um, kind of the idea that there are no universal types of male and females out there there are just different men and women who happen to be good at different social ta- skills, right? So um, I think I lost myself. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, right. I mean, it, it gives us a sense again of um, of the the numbers of different ways that men could experience, uh, interpret their experience, right, and the scripts they were drawing on. Well, actually, let me let, yeah. let me retrace, and I will tell you what was really interesting is that kind of to point to to stress the uh, the idea that there were multiple there are, there were and there are multiple ways of actually 
uh, kind of of explaining why women and men should share combat, should share combat, co commanding positions, uh, and what they should do kind of uh, out uh, after the war. Uh, I, I deal with different kinds of male recollections of their experiences of sharing combat with women. So, and I wouldn't say that one is more typical than the other. I would say that actually there are just multiple ways of remembering those years. One, for us, most predictable would be a male commander who is in charge of female combatants, who actually is trying to force their decision to fight into conventional explanations. He would, regardless of what he hears, those women are saying. So such a male commander would uh, talk about... Um, uh, young women being desperate to avenge their fathers, young women being desperate to help the motherland, young women being uh, desperate to help the country at this moment of incredible emergency of 1941 and 42. So those memoirs actually would follow the traditional interpretation in accordance with which women can enter combat as much as they want, as long as we explain this act by exceptional circumstances. Or we would explain this fact by these women being exceptional women, and therefore these exceptional women cannot possibly challenge conventional notions of womanhood. So, but this is not the only way male combatants and commanders will remember World War II experience. Another way would be for actually a commanding officer or a combatant begin with kind of miscomprehension of what's going on and gradually start actually kind of developing listening to women's interpretations, thinking, kind of kind of reaching out in 1930s, reaching out to 1930s movies and novels that already had posited a female commander or combatant as a historical possibility, and actually start taking those images from 1930s, bringing them into 1941, 42, 43 kind of realities, and then into their memoirs and suggesting that there probably there are different kinds of womanhood, and therefore there are different kinds of manhood too. Because for kind of this alternative, kind of a different way of remembering uh, male and female sharing combat, will be questioning not only what women are and what, whether women could be combatants. There will be also another aspect of questioning what what manhood means, whether all men are destined to become soldiers. Maybe some men are destined to become doctors and should be taking care of the wounds of other soldiers, of what other soldiers suffered. So that will be another one. But then also there is a very profound kind of theme in male memoirs where men cannot make up their minds. And mm -hmm. that's to me very interesting because it kind of captures the multiplicity of ways to think about combat violence, death, and killing. So a typical kind of uh, memoir in that, uh, in that, uh, in that uh, form of remembering will be uh, a male commander who is remembering him actually taking a woman to combat because he just couldn't think of the way to tell her no. That's mm -hmm. very, it's very significant in itself that in 1941-42, a male commander cannot think on the way of refusing a female <laughs> who wants yeah. to fight. Right? Because he actually will be disoriented in what particular in what particular logic, what particular logic to follow, right? Like whether it will be bourgeois logic that women should not fight, or maybe this is not bourgeois, maybe that's maybe that's maybe it's correct logic, or whether they should actually follow logic that Soviet um, institutions, schools, and literature also had supplied by 1941. So, and then the, this man, like this char male character 
would be spending a lot of time in his memoir reflecting whether he had made the right choice, whether he had made the right decision by letting a female to fight. And this recollection, reflection, will be complicated in those, even will be very complicated in those cases when the young woman that uh, a male officer actually admitted would actually die. So the memoir actually will be devoted to this reflection whether he, as a commander, should have let her in and followed her and uh, kind of accepting her agency, accepting her understanding who she is and accepting her vision of what gender script she wants to participate in, basically, or whether she should follow the more natural, more traditional way of thinking about society. And in a lot of memoirs, men actually cannot make up their mind even in 1960s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And of course, there are, it goes without saying that they're living within a world where lots of men are dying too. Right. Um, but, but again, the traditional script, you know, uh, would suggest that maybe women shouldn't die in this manner. Um, so, so they're still struggling with that decades afterward. You know, one, you do have very interesting things to say with about the sort of translation of stories in the post-war decades. But before we get to that, I do want to ask you a little bit about the subject of romantic relationships. Because, you know, one thing you talked about earlier on is, of course, women do not see being a soldier as contrary to becoming a wife, right? Mm-hmm. As contrary to invo- you know, involvement in, in heterosexual romance. Um, and so again, it's not a matter of sort of blocking that out or putting it on a hold. It's considered, uh, it, you know, how does, how is that managed? And of course, you know, you think about sort of controversies, you know, over women in the American military today, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the fear of, of the debilitating uh, effects of romantic relationships is, is something people think about quite a lot, but we have a different story. Uh, that, that you're telling for for the 1940s in the Soviet in the Soviet trenches, as it were. Yeah, well, the Soviet case is a bit diff- different, right? Because the women that uh, I'm writing about uh, entered combat for a short period of time. I mean, like they they entered it for four years, but they didn't see it as necessarily their life calling, where they would spend all their life like being a coming professional military officers. So the stakes that these women were fighting for, they basically wanted to be citizen soldiers. And they wanted to be citizen soldiers to this logical kind of like, to the very logical uh, limit where men and women will have the right to defend their motherland. And therefore, if actually women and men would be sharing the role of a citizen soldier only for a limited period of time, then just by by this, uh, by definition, Rows of motherhood, rows of uh, of heterosexual heterosexual romance, or what kind of role you would play in heterosexual heterosexual romance, they would not be closed up. You actually, that's a, still it's a part of the life story. You can fight at the age of nineteen, and then you actually still think about yourself as a possibly mother, as a wife, and also as a romantic partner. So it doesn't have to preclude either or. So, and uh, in the Soviet case, um, heterosexual romance, I was very crucial for survival at the, at the front, actually. I call heterosexual romance as, uh, as therapy. Um, and it's, I, I don't know if it's, I, I don't know if it's uh, the right thing to call it, but this is how, it's the function of being constantly in love at, at the front. Mm-hmm. So what's, what to me is, was very perplexing and interesting is that, 
those women who wanted to enter military to be citizen soldiers, to actually fight as professional soldiers, but for short, for a duration of the war, and then go back to their normal lives after the war, they usually were in their late teens, early 20s. So this is a time when people fall in love, and they passionately fall in love. And at the same time, this is a time for these women, then they actually entered the military, they had to abide very strong, strict discipline, and also they had to negotiate what, how their heterosexuality, heterosexual desire is going to factor into those spaces. I think I want to underline that there were no, like, it's actually 1941, because women had never been in military in, so, in such numbers before, and men and women had not really interacted in professional military settings before 1941, it was all a matter of experimentation and trying things out. So, so and the way, and what started happening starting from 1941-42, especially in 43, when the war becomes victorious, gets into, uh, kind of has it, it, uh, the, uh, the table changes, the table turns, and the Soviet army actually start winning the war, is that the, all the spaces where men and women share combat, they become spaces of intense heterosexual romantic encounters. But romantic encounters and romantic uh, kind of romantic encounters here actually are op- counterposed to sexual relations. And this is not my counterposition. It's the counterposition that women combatants uh, stress and insist on in their memoirs and also in their interviews. So what women, uh, the way women combatants will uh, kind of narrate their heterosexual desires as they were taking over them in the front is that they would say that it was basically, it was a therapeutic thing to fall in love with this, with somebody because that will take the stress, that will take you, that will allow your mind to turn away from combat and through fantasizing heterosexual relationship, and in their case, it's it's, it's a very basically it's, it's always heterosexual relationship, and taking this relationship into after the war into some space after the war that creates a possibility of mental survival at the front. So, uh, the male-female military culture was very rom- kind of romance-oriented in that in that case. So all it was n- nearly prerequisite for a female combatant to have uh, some a boyfriend and for of course a male combatant to have a girlfriend so but co- professional female combatants would only say that, i mean they would have they would have to have a boyfriend but they would claim that they didn't have sex with that boyfriend and i know it's impossible to believe it <laughs> <laughs> but so so there is i mean so there is like in female memoirs and also in literature there is enormous amount of space devoted to heterosexual romance and by heterosexual romance is meant writing letters, writing poetry, writing into diaries, uh, meeting briefly uh, somewhere at the front. If you're, co- if you're a combat pilot, you would fly across a long distance in order just to fly over the airfield where your female pilot is stationed and then fly back. And because they're professionals, they can recognize each other's flying signatures so they will know that this is the right guy or the right woman will do that. They would also flirt in the air. <laughs> so this is a, so. But so heterosexual romance actually has a very non-sexual connotation. It doesn't mean that they're sexually not attracted, but, but they just they don't follow to. They don't allow their heterosexual romance go into the sexual, um, the sexual. Um, they don't allow sexual development to it. 
And what's remarkable is, you know, again, contrary to what might be some readers' expectations, is that they themselves don't describe this as perhaps an unwelcome distraction or um, or something that's, you know, sort of seen as, you know, potentially damaging to unit cohesion or anything like that. But they're, they're it's, it's, as you say, it's sort of a survival mechanism. Um, it's, it gives you some reason to, to be optimistic about the future. Um, it gives you something nice to think about when the bullets aren't flying. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that, it, that it's, it's just, a, it, it, it turns out to, to just be very functional. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I would add that they also try to fall in love with, um, with, with men and women who are not in their regiment. <laughs> so there is, there is a certain distance. Uh, and a, yeah, yeah. That they yeah. actually, it is better. Uh, I mean, so there is an unconscious uh, kind of censoring mechanism where people are not falling in love with each other in the same regiment or especially in the same platoon. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But they need to have a, some kind of a desirable other that they can use in their stories about, about possible future. Right. And there's also seems to be a bit of that censoring mechanism when it comes to, um, female commanders, mm-hmm. um, and, 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 you know, any kind of, you know, flirtation or mutual attraction with, with male subordinates. This is clearly something where, you know, it makes sense just to steer clear of that. <laughs> there seems to be a bit of, of, of self-censorship in that regard as well. Yeah. Yeah. And you tell us a little bit about about this post-war story, because it seems to me to take us back to, in a sense, your own personal introduction, um, why it was that when you saw women in parades, it never occurred to you that they were combatants. And you talk a little bit about, now, of course, not necessarily post-war memoirs where people are telling their own stories, but the more um, perhaps sort of mainstream uh, tropes of, of retelling the war and women's roles that... Uh, that tells something very different, that seems to write out certain parts of the history and and play up a more distinctly feminine way of being, um, a kind of, you know, kind of a, a, a rewriting of, of the history that occurs in the 50s and 60s. I wonder if you could explain that process to a little, us a little bit. What do, what is, what do the mainstream tellings of the war look like a couple of decades afterwards? Mm-hmm. The post-war period is... Uh actually continues to be as contradictory as the war and pre-war period, but in a different way. If before the war, contradictory visions of war would be coexisting in the center of, um, kind of, of Stalinist culture, so like in Pravda you could read kind of completely opposing um, stories about what a female should do when the war comes, then after the war, this story actually continues to be developed even even further detail in female and male memoirs, but those memoirs actually uh, get relegated to the margins. And then the center is being overtaken by more conventional recollections of the war, which erase female participation in combat and actually kind of bring in a dominant female figure who is a doctor who actually doesn't belong to combat, even if she is a doctor, and who had gone to combat because she was... She had something. She had, she had been confused, right? So, so the post-war period is very kind of is, is very continues to be very multi-gendered as far as scripts are concerned. But the scripts are now not being coexisting in the center, but actually are being prioritized. The alternative visions of the war get marginalized, and conventional visions of the war actually get prioritized and put in the center of uh, kind of of Soviet literature popular literature, popular film, and popular journalistic coverage and recollections of the war. To me, what was very interesting is 
how it was possible to erase the kind of, kind of not erase, to marginalize. In this case, erasure is actually the wrong term. So the correct term, I think, is marginalization. So the question is how it was possible to marginalize the female and male memoir accounts of alternate kind of a war where war is shared between men and women uh, and to such a degree that my generation that was growing up in the 70s and 80s actually didn't even notice, didn't, we didn't even know that those alternative stories existed. Like, like we didn't feel a lack, we didn't feel a need to find out what other stories are there to be read maybe. So how did this process come? Like why it never occurred to me to come up to a female veteran and ask her what did, actually what did you do at the front? Like, why did I always assume that I already uh, that I already knew? And to me, the answer lies actually again. Like, it actually goes back to institutional policies and Soviet schools. And this is something that I didn't touch on in my in my book, but I think it's actually a very important part of the story that I touched on in the, in, the, in the article. I think what happens is that in 1941, when a, very, a particular generation of women volunteers to the front. And men from that generation actually do not see that as uh, absolutely uh, incomprehensible. And other parts of Soviet society also can figure out a reason why these women are doing what they're doing. This signaled to the Soviet leadership how much an impact an educational system can make on just one generation. Like actually, kind of the lessons of the 1930s educational system, which was thoroughly integrated, uh, were that one can change gender perceptions profoundly in a very short period of time, in, in a lifetime of one generation. So after, in, and what happens during the war, and this is the reason why male and female accounts about sharing combat together become actually very much irrelevant to the post-war generation, is that in 1943, Soviet government decides to actually completely segregate Soviet education. Soviet government, government decides to create male and female schools and ask and have very much kind of male, kind of traditionally male education in male schools and traditional female education in female schools, where men will be trained to be soldiers starting from 1943 and women will be trained to be housewives. I mean, I mean, there will be, of course, workers, but there will be also, there will be a lot of emphasis put on home economics which had been missing from 1930s curriculum, right? So, in the sense, the Soviet leadership learned its lessons from 1930s and realized that this, that school policies can undo and redo, like traditional gender uh, roles in a very efficient manner. So, the constitution of segregated education 1943 produced a new generation in the Soviet society, which actually naturally thought along conventional gender terms which couldn't even allow an imagination or kind of allow itself imagining that the front actually could be shared between men and women and women actually can have a very important role at the front as combatants and commanders. And that kind of helped the Soviet government not even to get involved in the cultural debates about the, the heritage, heritage of the war. Because what they created, they created schools which were producing generations that couldn't even conceive of women as combatants. And they naturally, I mean, they were basically oblivious <laughs> to whatever veterans who actually shared combat together were writing in 1950s, 60s, and 70s. 
And the fact, and of course, the Soviet government also kind of privileged those writers who were writing much more traditional stories of war uh, after uh, kind of uh, in 1960s and 70s. So it is a very complicated period in which, on one hand, the Soviet government privileges certain traditional accounts of war, which erase those actual stories, not only of women, but men and women who fought together, right? And also raises not only female accounts, but also male accounts who contradict conventional images of the war. But at the same time, the Soviet schools are now creating a different generation, which turned to be completely uninterested in any kind of alternative gender notions that they had been in the 1930s. It's a very fascinating story. Um, and, you know, it, it, you know, when you sort of think about the, the impact of, of educational policy and socialization, first in the 30s and in the post-war period, um, and like you say, sort of almost turning on a dime, the, the impact within the space of a single generation, it's remarkable. Um, this is just an incredible story all around. I, I'm so glad I had the opportunity to read this book and to speak with you. Um, We've taken up a lot of time with this book, but I think it's well worth it. Um, I certainly recommend recommend the book highly to our listeners. Why don't you tell us a little bit, um, before we close off, what we have to look forward to um, from you in the future? What are you working on now? Uh, I'm, I'm working on two projects. Uh, one project is um, a continuation uh, of this project. Uh, I was very interested, how is it possible to rethink gender uh, outside of opposition-bound notions, like in this book. So to me, what was it kind of at the very foundational level of of Soviet of young Soviet women and women and young Soviet men rethinking of uh, gender notions? Actually, there was kind of this possibility of thinking about soldierly calling as being not in opposition with womanhood and also actually compatible with motherhood. And this ability to think about combat and womanhood, manhood and womanhood ultimately, right, as not being in opposition constituted a very interesting question to me. So what kind of gender logic, what kind of gender concept is there if it doesn't oppose between male and female? And um, I, in the book, I start referring to this different, like kind of this alternative way of mapping social spaces not in opposition, not by excluding female or including male, and not hierarchizing between males and females as opposition non-bound binaries. So an idea was that actually you still have a binary of male and female, but you don't privilege opposition as the only way to make sense of the way men, male and female actually relate to each other, or mm -hmm. men and women. So the question that still remained to me was... Uh, what is the mechanism of, of that rethinking? So in a sense, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a book, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find a way not to oppose between male and female roles and qualities in a, tradition, in a conventional, predictable manner. But I also was very interested, what were, what were the cultural, kind of cultural um, discussions that enabled that non-opposition-bound way of thinking about gender, where we really can no longer think, talk about gender, or work of gender, we really have to talk about work of gender forms. So we need to pluralize uh, the notion of gender that we usually use kind of in the singular. We need to actually maybe start using the plural. So in order to find out how this pluralization of gender forms uh, uh, takes place in the Soviet Union, 
I'm now looking at the role of biological discourses in the Soviet Union. And I think that the role of biological discourses and how biology as a discourse was used by Soviet educationalists and was used by young men and women in the 1930s actually played a very important role. We tend to think about biology as something that fixes uh, traditional gender expectations or uh, fixes female nature in a particular traditional paradigm. But in the Soviet case, biology played a very revolutionary role. Instead of using biology to fix themselves in a traditional um, uh, role, men and women in the 1930s actually were claiming that they were kind of the whole way, the whole reason behind experimenting in a secondary school, finding out who you were, was actually done in order to find out what your nature-given gifts were. And it was possible for a young female to claim that her nature-given gift was actually being a combat pilot. Or uh, to a female, for like for a boy actually, to start wondering where what his like what what are his talents and gifts which are given to him by nature, what they really are, whether they're really masculine or feminine, uh, or whether masculine and feminine in an old way actually can correspond uh, to who he is. So this ability to use nature to dec- to open up possibilities of thinking about human nature, which is actually not doesn't doesn't abide conventional gender oppositions was a very interesting phenomenon. So I'm looking at how biology as discourse can actually was used in the 30s in order to create this possibility for multiple gender forms. In very interesting. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Um, and what's your second project? Oh, my second project is um, is also a bit. Uh, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a cultural history project. Uh, it's very much connected also to gender and biological discussions in the thirties, but um, it is actually the history of the Soviet. It's an attempt to write the history of the concept of the Soviet as mm. a cultural concept, as an identity, and as um, um, kind of as as a. As, I'll start this over again, yeah. but it will be probably good. Okay. So my my second project is a cultural history project. It's um, it's called um, the history of the Soviet, uh, the mm-hmm. history of Soviet modernity. So the history of the Soviet is a history of this category Soviet as a language, as a cult- culture, as an identity, and it comes out of very interesting observation that I made is that. Despite the fact that historians and literary critics and use the word Soviet, actually, when we use the word Soviet, we actually always assume that the Soviet had descriptive uh, qualities and could, and the, so, and the word Soviet can describe a personality, a feeling, um, uh, I don't know, an identity starting from 1920s. In the Soviet case, that actually was not the case. In the Soviet case, the Soviet becomes the Soviet becomes a category that can ex- describe a personality only in 1930s. So before mm. 1936, the, actually, the Soviet, like, there had been no Soviet people, there had been no Soviet person, there had been no Soviet qualities, uh, or Soviet soil even. Until 19, mid-1930s, everything in the Soviet Union was proletarian, mm, <laughs> Marxist. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the, I'm interested in what is happening socially and, and, and generationally in the Soviet Union, that in the mid-1930s, the Soviet, kind of Soviet society needs a new term to describe itself. 
Interesting. Very interesting. Well, this is, those are two ambitious projects, um, but they sound terrific. Um, this has been just fascinating to talk to you about your work, and I'm, I'm grateful to you for taking the time. We've been talking to Ada Krylova about her book, Soviet Women in Combat. Uh, thanks for being with us today, Anna. My pleasure. Our guest today has been Anna Krylova, author of Soviet Women in Combat, A History of Violence on the Eastern Front, published with Cambridge University Press in 2010. Thanks for joining us. 